Welcome to the FedHeads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the FedHeads each week as Robert Shea and a celebrity guest host talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Hello and welcome to another episode of FedHeads and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague once again, Adam Hughes. Adam, welcome back. You came back. I it's did. Al- always a surprise to me. Uh, always lovely to spend time with you, Robert. Thank you for inviting me back. Yes. It's good to have a salaried uh, co-host <laughs> on the uh, Fed Heads. So an epic milestone in government management is occurring, and that is the retirement of our guest today. Christine Simmons leads government affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, which we've featured a number of times on this program, but never Christine. Christine has been plowing the government management reform field on Capitol Hill for, and we, we discussed this, Christine and I have been working together. I don't know whether it's more than 20 or, or almost 30. Did we figure out what we were going to call that? Uh, a long time. A long time. <laughs> a long time. Of, uh, but that's what nerds do. That's we right. We away at uh, nerdy work of making government work better, and it's fun. Time so, flies. Yeah, so I joined the House Committee on Government Reform after you did, and then you left and went to the Senate Government Affairs Committee, and then I joined the Senate Government Affairs Committee. That's when you phoned the police and called me a no, stalker. No, kept going. Then I went to the administration, then you went to the administration. That's right. And then you left for the partnership, but you've been... I, I, we're still waiting to get you at the partnership, Robert, <laughs> maybe someday. <laughs> I, it's in my heart. It's in my heart. And now you're retiring after... Robert, let me pause. I'm actually not... I don't like to think of it as retirement. Okay, good. I like to think of this as a needed career pause because I've been at the partnership for 20 amazing years. Wow. It's a it's fantastic a organization. It's a long time. But I just said, you know what, I would be happy here for another 20 years, but that's not really challenging myself. And I don't think it's good for the organization to have the same person in this role forever. So um, I was the first person they had as vice president for government affairs. And I just decided, you know what, time for them to get an opportunity for somebody new. And I want to stay very close to the partnership and continue to help and support. But I just thought it was a good time for me to take a break. So I'm basically taking off the summer. And I'm having fun and uh, traveling and doing the podcast with you and <laughs> figuring out what else I can do to not completely lose touch with everything happening out there. I'm watching a lot of January 6th uh, testimony. And then I think after Labor Day, I'll figure out, you know, how uh, busy I want to be. So anyway, all, all that's my long way of saying it's not really retirement. It's a I'm, that's why I keep saying I'm. I'm stepping down or stepping away from Got my it. Ball. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what to think about the fact that you're spending your time off watching a congressional hearing. But <laughs> the, <laughs> she did she did already admit to being a nerd, so I feel like a, yeah. a government a nerd. nerd. Uh, so, so, Christine, tell us what you did at the partnership, but most importantly, what you're most proud of in the 20 years that you served there. Oh, gosh, thank you for that question. Um So I'm proud of two things, and they're both very different. Um, As the Vice President for Government Affairs, my job was to oversee the Congressional Affairs Legislative Affairs activities. Um, We are not registered to lobby as an organization because we don't hit the threshold for for triggering all of the registration. But we know what that's like. (laughs) 
So we, we do care deeply about um, the laws and policies that government operates. And my job was to figure out how we took the work we were doing at the partnership, work we were doing with our partners like Grant Thornton, and figure out what's the legislative angle. Is there one? Uh, we've testified many, many times. So I've written dozens and dozens of pieces of testimony. I've testified myself a few times. And I would say what I'm most proud of, to, again, two things. One would be that under my leadership of that team, that we were able to get over 50 pieces of legislation enacted into law. And those are very significant pieces of legislation, um, but all, you know, kind of small tinkering at the edges things, but, you know, creation of chief human capital officers, creation of the employee surveys, which is now the federal employee viewpoint survey that we all love so much. That's something that happened because we worked on it. We brought it to lawmakers and convinced them it was a good idea. Um, and also can be things like Public Service Recognition Week, which is not you know, life-changing, but it's really a significant moment to recognize the work of public servants. So, so I think the legislative production we were able to achieve is something I'm proud of, and that's as a result of a fantastic team that has uh, really grown since uh, the over the 20-year arc of my career. There, it started out just me, and now we have uh, you know eight people, and it's a great, great team. And the other thing I'm proud of is the opportunity I've had to work with incredible young people early in their careers and who really let me share my knowledge, share advice, share insights, give them opportunities. And when I hear from them or I see where they are in their careers, it feels very rewarding to, for me to see that some of these young people I've had a chance to work with are really flourishing. And that's not because of me. But knowing I had some small part in their career is, is very satisfying. I, I love that answer. That's a great answer. Christine, one of the things you did at the partnership was you oversaw the Center for Presidential Transition. If I'm trying to think of areas in the time you've been working in Washington where we've seen greater improvement in performance and management of a governmental function than in presidential transitions. I mean, I think compared to when you came to D.C. in the 90s, compared to now, huge leaps and gains in making ensuring the smooth transition from one administration to a new presidency. Talk a little bit about that. I know that the partnership has done tons of work in this area and has published fantastic, helpful data for at least three or four transitions. Tell us a little bit about that part of your job there and, um, and maybe a little bit about where you hope that will go after your, your time at the partnership ends. Adam, I don't know if I can talk about it for a little bit because there is so much to unpack when you talk about presidential transitions. And what I really come away with is thank goodness that we took this work on when we did because presidential transitions are not getting any easier. And so much of what the partnership did really is prescient in trying to create a learning system. That's the way our CEO, Max Dyer, thinks about it. It's a learning system so that new teams don't have to reinvent the wheel. And that's really what was happening. Perspiring administrations would call the last candidate and people would get boxes out of their attics and their basements and their garages and turn it over. And people had to really figure out what goes into transition. In the meantime, you had this apparatus happening within government, but there was no real effort to figure out how we can do it better and faster and really focus on the information 
that is most essential for a new administration to, to learn and decisions they're going to have to make very early. So we've gotten um, bigger and, and better as an organization around the transition work with every experience um, we've had. And the partnership of an outgoing administration is critically helpful. And I still, um, you know, we'll talk about the outgoing Bush administration, which really set the standard for how an outgoing administration can work in a nonpartisan way. And it's really not bipartisan, it's nonpartisan. This is for the good of yep, the country. Definitely. Um, and then trying to, what we've really tried to do is capture lessons learned from each one because they are all different. Each one has its own challenges and issues that come up and institutionalize that knowledge so that there's a place for for a new team to go to find out how did the past administration or past campaigns or transition teams deal with vetting? How did they deal with a virtual transition? That was a big learning from 2020. It was the first time this had been done almost completely virtually. So and I'm sure um, I'm, I'm assuming as with many things learned during the COVID pandemic, some, some of those things were maybe easier, but some of them were harder. And even knowing which ones are which on something like a transition, I'm sure will be helpful the next time to become more efficient. Trying to determine, again, you should do a whole podcast series on transitions. And there are a lot of interesting people you could talk to. Well, we've got her. Okay. Well, right now. okay. I'm going to, I'm kicking, I'm kicking you off and um, <laughs> boy, there's like so much more to, to, um, to unpack, but you know, even thinking about a new administration, who do they want to hold over? You know, Bob Gates was held over at a secretary position, but there are other people who get hold over and there, there are Trump appointees who are, have been hauled over by the Biden administration. Those are all decisions on a person by person, position by position basis that has to be made. How do they make those decisions? When do they make those decisions? If they want to replace people, when do they need to start thinking about that? Because they can't wait till the day after the election. So to answer your question about what I hope for the partnership to and the Center for Presidential Transition to continue to anticipate challenges and think about whatever the environment is in 2024, and, and try to get ahead of that, both to be responsive in the moment to the transition teams that are needing help, asking for help. And we have great rapid response capability when they say, hey, how do, um, like, what are what are the, you know, 20 positions that have been hardest to fill? I'm speaking this up. We're able to, to pull on our network of uh, people, including Robert Shea, to help us build those lists and answer those questions. Um, so it's both to meet the need, but also to anticipate what the needs are going to be given the environment that we will have in 2024. And a lot of prediction. I don't know what it will look like. It's a little too early to say, but um, I'm sure there'll be some unique challenges. Nice Fed head plug there. Um, so, you know, I, we mentioned that I, I tracked your career from the House and Senate Oversight Committees to, to the administration. You stalked uh, me. Stalked, stalked you, me. right. Uh, I was interviewing uh, one of the leaders of the House Committee on Government Oversight recently and asked her where the potential areas of bipartisanship were, and she, without a beat, said, it's not a bipartisan committee. You won't find bipartisanship on the Committee on Government Oversight. And though it certainly has its partisanship, it's often been 
a, a committee that's produced bipartisan reform, reform post-reform is probably the re- most recent best example. But can you give us your observation of how those committees have evolved and grade them on the extent to which they can actually get stuff done that's important to improving the management of the government? Uh, I'm not going to give a grade because I will. You're from the partnership. That's what y'all do. do yeah, y'all. That's what y'all do. Christine, you could do a you could do a red, uh, yellow, green stoplight approach too. There for you go. If you want to take an homage from the past, those were the days. <laughs> Okay, those were the days. Well, you notice we've never graded members of Congress, and that's, well, because I've been leading government affairs with partnerships. <laughs> like we're, we're not doing that as long as I'm there. Uh, There's another podcast idea right there. Might, Sometimes it's nice to be in charge. Yeah, so, like, you know what? I'm going to talk about the Senate briefly um, first, and then I'll come back to the House, which is, and I, I started in the House. So the Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs, which is what it was called when I worked there, and Robert, I believe, when when you were yep, there. that's right. Um, th- there was not a Homeland Security jurisdiction. And so the committee attracted by, by you know, I'm generalizing, obviously, but it attracted members who were interested in the function of government. It was not a committee where you typically made a lot of money for fundraising purposes. Those were other committees. Um, so it was a place that most members were serving because they were interested in the breadth of issues that were available, and they actually cared about how government worked. And George Voinovich was my, um, when I left the full committee in the Senate, and I was his staff director for his subcommittee, the reason he got on the committee is because John Glenn, but George Voinovich was a Republican, John Glenn was his Democratic predecessor in the Senate, and said, you should get on this committee, you can do anything. You have unlimited oversight jurisdiction and it's great fun, there's so much you can do. And Voinovich was very intellectually curious, loved government and how it works, had extensive experience as mayor and governor and, um, and he loved it. Today, I see, I would say a majority of the members of the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs in the Senate are on the committee because of the homeland security jurisdiction, or they have a greater interest in it, or the homeland issues tend to crowd out some of the management issues. And an example of this is when the fence jumpers were jumping over the White House fence a few years ago. You might recall there were there are a number of issues going on with the Secret Service and with the fence. Right. So there were hearings they were planning on federal workforce issues that kept getting postponed because of the more urgent homeland security needs. So that is a concern. What I, so the effect of that, from where I sit, is an atrophying of institutional knowledge. Um, if I think about the number of members of Congress who have a depth of understanding of Title V and federal workforce policy, I can, it's one hand. I mean, if there, if there are five people. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems high to me, but yeah. <laughs> you, you would okay. know better. You said it. Those are your words. But yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but right? I mean, so so that over time, that's, that is, I think, the effect we have seen. In, in the House, something different, but the effect is the same, which is an atrophying of, um, of expertise around the management issues. As the committee under... I don't want to put it under any particular chairman. I'll say when I worked there, and I, I joined when we were in the minority, and I was there when we took the majority very unexpectedly in the 1994 election. 
Um, and it was like wildly fun because it was like a different job to be in the House minority on the committee versus the majority was just, you know, setting the agenda. And we had to learn how to run the committee because it had been 40 years. It had been 40 years since Republicans had run it. And um, uh, we've we've recently talked about this at the memorial service for their, our, our chairman, Chairman Bill Klinger, an incredible um, gentleman and wonderful uh, mentor for many of us. But he'd never been a chairman, so we all had to learn how to do that. Um, the emphasis of our committee was really split. This is in the very, again, first time Republicans have the majority in 40 years. We had pieces of the contract with America, so big, legis meaty legislative accomplishments that we were running on the floor. Uh, line item veto, unfunded mandates, Regulatory really cool, reform, interesting yeah. thing. And there was investigation work going on. This is when Ron Brown was Secretary of Commerce. There was, you know, stories about selling the Lincoln bedroom to donors for the Clintons, all this. So the committee was really, I thought, well-balanced between investigations and uh, legislation. And over time, we had a lot of moderate Republicans on the committee. There aren't many moderate Republicans left anyway. But the people who now serve on the committee, like the dominant activity of the committee is investigative from, from my perspective. That attracts different members. It, it lead, leadership wants to put different people on there. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, I, that there are no bipartisan areas that they can work on. And Robert, you mentioned postal reform. How many decades was that in yeah. the works when it finally got done? But boy, is it hard to do. It's really hard to do. And I think it's a, um, a, a function of the types of members, the types of issues the committee is expected to work on. And um, and also just where, you know, where we are, there's no uh, shortage of controversial issues to investigate. So um, sorry for the long answer. No, that's but a fantastic answer. And I think incredibly insightful. You've basically given us uh the next six months agenda for the <laughs> Fed heads episodes. Um, we unfortunately are out of time. You are a treasure and I'm really excited to see what your next chapter is after we meet for drinks and dinner at Rex. Okay. I would love it. And Robert, can I make a plug for the work of the select committee on modernization? Of course. They're doing fantastic work and really trying to find ways within the institution to foster the kind of relationships that we need to get things done. So if you've not spent much time on the select committee on the modernization of Congress, I strongly urge you to give them a call did and she, I can I'm happy to help you. Did she just give us homework? Uh, I think it was really more a critic, critical comment of you oh, than oh, homework for both of us, but you know, that's possible. Way to interpret that. <laughs> I'll give you homework. You don't have to do it, but for me on, this was, Always a pleasure to see you, and congratulations on your success with this podcast. It's great to see you're in the in the hundreds of episodes now, so congratulations. Thanks for being on. You've really lifted us up, and um, enjoy your time off. Yeah. Let us know where you land. I will. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to see you both. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GT Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.